Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show for the bonus content from this episode, which includes a discussion about dating while socialist. And please rate and review us on iTunes. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and I'm joined as always by... Hey, it's me, the one and only Gabe Pacheco. What's going on, everybody? I'm right here just enjoying another soda. Thanks for having me on board again, Katie. Super sure. excited to be here. We are also excited to be joined by Erin Neff. She works with the DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, and she is particularly involved in the social in the feminist working group the so- socialist feminist working group. socialist feminist working group of the democratic socialists of america that's a mouthful you know i'm wondering if maybe we'd have socialism if we had like streamlined better labels for things yeah 180 characters or is 140 it 140 characters right no but he's being a realist he's like look it's not twitter length let's be real let's be we need generous. 180 so more people <laughs> exactly. get more characters yeah that's exactly right. to mm-hmm. each according to his own handles um <laughs> tell us Aaron, what makes dsa tick mainly capitalism mm, you're welcome capitalism <laughs> <to DSA. laughs> shout outs to capitalism yeah. yeah dsa the democratic socialists of america is a socialist organization the new york city branch is entirely volunteer based branch we're working on a lot of different issues the right to housing women's issues immigration justice climate justice racial justice and we sort of run the gamut with the main purpose of supporting the work Working class, supporting the majority of people, and bringing down capitalism. What effect has the election of, of Donald Trump had on your organization and your membership? Um, that's a great question. So DSA had a steady membership of about 6,000 people for a long time. It started to increase a little bit with Bernie Sanders running for president. And then literally the night of the election, as it got closer to midnight, as it became more evident that Donald Trump was going to win, the membership of DSA just started growing and growing and growing. And I believe in the first week after the election, DSA gained a thousand new members. And now I believe we just hit 20,000. So you heard it here first. Donald Trump, great for DSA. Donald Trump <laughs> is the new Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Donald Trump, we've talked about this before. He's kind of woke. <laughs> he is. He he managed to get the the word pussy normalized. Feminists have been trying to reclaim pussy for years. And what happens? He mentions that he grabs women by the pussy and all of a sudden the media is using that word. Every single Republican is going to have to answer the question, what did you do the day you saw the tape of this man boasting about grabbing exactly. a woman's pussy? It's destigmatized. And Thank now he's Donald. done that to socialism, pussy and socialism. So basically Donald Trump's election is what led to DSA getting massive enrollment kind of in a way right the way i see it is that bernie planted the seeds right bernie got people talking about socialism and us. donald trump Knocked watered the soil yeah <laughs> donald donald trump <laughs> no he shat on it right and right. that fertilized everything <laughs> great I like and that. then out of that uh dsa right. grew that was a much better you know, when you I said like plant the seed, I made it sexual, which is really weird and also doesn't work as a metaphor because then Donald Trump is like giving yeah. someone a major UTI or the midwife. And I don't think either of those works. Although you, he kind of is a national UTI, yeah. global UTI. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll talk about this. You went later. blue. You went blue. I went blue. But I, I like mean, this. Is it blue? Is it blue if it's biology? Mm. Mm. See, again, something Donald to Trump, think about. <laughs> something to think about. Donald Trump keeping us woke again. He does. He, he introduced the term pussy. What else did he do? LGBTQ. Put yeah. that Q on there. Added Talk, the Q. Add the Q. Talks about how he loves his LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Only weeks ago, 
in Orlando, Florida, 49 wonderful Americans were savagely murdered by an Islamic terrorist. This time, the terrorists targeted LGBTQ community. No good. And we're going to stop it. And that's why he has to keep them safe from the foreign ideology that is Islam. As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. How did you come to socialism? Or democratic socialism, I should say, to be more specific. For me, like a lot of people, it's I've sort of had these thoughts for a long time of being like, capitalism is super messed up. Why is this happening? Um, why is this considered the norm? And then as sort of time went on, um, working on the Bernie Sanders campaign, this idea of socialism got much more normalized and became much more mainstream. And people started talking about like it wasn't this scary thing anymore. And then, um, do you remember that old music video? I think it was Blind Melon where there was the bee. Girl in the bee costume. The girl in the bee mm -hmm. costume and she was kind of lost and then mm -hmm. she found all the other bees. Well, in this scenario, the other bees all are the other comrades. And I sort of feel like I always had these ideas and then you kind of coming across Bernie Sanders and then DSA, I kind of found a place where I fit in and other people were sharing the same ideas. Fellow bees. Fellow bees. Flying. Comrade bees flying around, helping the people. I like it. Honey. Honey's important. Honey for everyone. Yeah. That's pot. right. A, a honey, honey in and a hive. Pot. A honey in a hive. A hive in every pot. A hive in... We, there's something beautiful really happening. Yes, there. I just want yes, to say, yeah. yes. Did you come from a a, back, a social a lefty background or? Um, I mean, I yeah, I I mean, I as far as being a liberal goes, I was a I would say I was a liberal wow. quote unquote liberal for a while, but um, have you know over the years gone more and more left, um, and I think also for me being a housing lawyer and working in housing court, you see every day basically the fight between the people and capitalism. And you have little old women fighting to stay in the home that they lived in for 20 years and some young guy right out of law school who's working for a landlord fighting to kick her out so that they, because they're not making enough money off of her. Right. And I think you see that enough and you think, you know, it's time to dismantle the system and there's a better way. And for me, that way is socialism. Another world is possible. I think, so you mentioned that you think housing is a right like healthcare, and I think that's true uh, philosophically, but it definitely has not become the movement that um, organizing issue that healthcare has become. Do you think that it will become that anytime soon? I mean, what's your guys' focus? Like, what's your orientation at DSA? Is it that we should first get uh, universal healthcare taken care of and then maybe turn to other things, or should it be a multi-pronged approach? Or I definitely think it should be a multi-pronged approach, and I think that's how DSA functions. Um, in New York City, we have a working group that works on housing, and then through the Socialist Feminist Working Group, we're working on healthcare and specifically the New York Health Act. Um, so we're, we're working on both these issues, and I don't think one is necessarily a priority over the other. I think healthcare, because it's a little more apparent to people if someone is sick and getting cancer and they don't have, they can't 
pay for it. It's just so much evident to people than I think housing is. And I think to a large extent housing is too. People without shelter, their life expectancy is so much shorter. But I think healthcare is just much more evident. Right. It's more direct and it's more dramatic. Um, but if you don't have a house, you're homeless and you have a dog or a pet, your life expectancy goes up. Really? Because you're taking care of something else. Yeah. Really? Yeah. If you take two people, one has a dog, one doesn't. Because you have something to live for, right? That's right. But if you had a home and a pet, you'd m- live mm. much longer than the homeless <laughs> but person. But let's just be incremental. <laughs> if we can just give everyone who doesn't have a home a pet. Yeah. That'd be much easier, right? A pet in every, in every homelessness <laughs> instead of a pet. No, that's actually fascinating. You know what else happens? We're not, we don't mock. I mean, we, we mock to highlight. That's our we we, so we highlight through mocking. We don't actually take this. Look, I'm trying to get us to a house for everyone, but yeah. like you know, we got in the, look, in the meantime kind of, a dog for yeah. everyone. Thank, right? Yeah, because dogs are being killed. We need dogs. Oh my god, you're right. You take all the dogs that would have been put to sleep, and you just walk down the murdered. street. Let's just say murdered. If you take all the dogs that were going to be murdered in these state-run uh, FEMA death camps, <laughs> then yeah. we we put them in uh, wicker baskets. Uh, and then the guy in the wicker basket goes in the subway, and everyone who doesn't have a dog but that looks home Homeless, right. you just give them a dog. <laughs> get offended, but we need to Look stigmatize it. So let's. Yeah. That's right. Profiling. Yeah. But this profiling. is benevolent profiling. Yeah, it it's is. not like, hey, you look homeless. I'm going to put homeless you in a can. Homeless That'd be right. Exactly. That's that. That would be the difficult thing. If yeah. you end up in Bushwick, you would just be giving away a bunch of dogs right. to like trust fund kids that don't shower. And right. I don't trust. Ironically enough, I do not trust trust fund kids to raise dogs with values. That's yeah. right. They're going to end up being neoliberal dogs. Totally. Then we all lose. So. Yeah, we all lose. <laughs> there yeah. goes your plan. There goes your plan. But you know what, Gabe? You're thinking outside the box. You're thinking outside the dog crate, outside the kennel. I'm thinking inside the wicker basket. Yes. I love the idea of a wicker basket. No backpack? I feel no, like... it's sustainable. Wicker basket, and it's not plastic, you know? Well, just... how about a wicker basket, uh, wicker basket pack? Wicker backpack skit. I'm into it. I'm going into back it, yeah. to the Wizard of Oz days, right? Toto yeah. was in the wicker basket. Oh, that's what you're thinking. You know that's right. that. And speaking of Wizard of Oz, you know that's a populist tale. I don't know if you guys know. It's a populist allegory. And it's Break about it the down. gold standard. And that's what the yellow brick road represents. Mm. Also, um, Oz is, he made that, that word up because uh, he, was, he told children stories off the cuff, kind of. And he was standing, sitting in front of his filing cabinets. And as he was telling these, the story to children, he had to come up with a name for the land. And he saw O through Z, because he was, or, he sounds kind of anal. He had his file cabinets organized. Anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, slash I'm the opposite of that. So he, he's probably normal. I'm like, he put his clothes away. Kind of weird. So he had <laughs> O through Z, and that spelled Oz. Let me get, you know what, but but I, I am very interested in this, this thing. We're going to have to do an extra special on this where we talk about um, Wizard of Oz, but it's interesting that you brought that up because that really is a kind of allegory for. Uh, it had to do with the gold standard. It had to do with you know finance. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. the yellow brick road. Yeah. But uh, that's as and far. And the Emerald as... City was. Dollar bills. <laughs> Wall yeah. Street. Wall Street. <laughs> Let's yes. see. I actually I found this right here. Um, you want to hear about it? Sure. Let's see. Um, so I went to themoneymasters.com, which is. Kind of sketches me out, but um, it's a compilation of several views of the monetary reform symbolism used by L. Frank Baum in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Interpretations vary, particularly on the lesser figures. Way to be normative. But this will give the readers good reference points to begin their consideration of the matter. Was the symbolism consciously or subconsciously employed? Employed. We cannot know for certainty, with certainty, 
Nor does it really matter. Oh, that's an interesting. Okay. What matters is that Baum understood the issues involved and employed them in Oz. Millions of Americans have seen Oz generally several times. That applies to me. Knowingly or not, Oz has given us a key to understanding the solutions to the economic issues we face in our time. If we could only accept that we have had the power to regain our bank mortgage homes all along, just as Dorothy did. Remember, there's no place like home. 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 Okay, Dorothy represents the everyman and woman, a simple populist character from the heartland. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Scarecrow represents farmers, agricultural workers, ignorant of many city things but honest and able to understand things with a little education. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. A strong supporter of Dorothy, i.e. populism. Thin man, industrial workers, a woodchopper whose entire body has been replaced with metal parts, thus dehumanized by machinery, robot-like with no heart, in need of oil, liquidity, money, to work, otherwise unemployed. He was idle for a year without oil. Car when a man's an empty kettle, he should be on his metal, and yet I'm torn apart. Just because I'm presuming that I could be kind of human if I only had a heart. I'd be tender, I'd be gentle, and awful sentimental regarding love and art. I'd be friends with the sparrows and the boy who shoots the arrows if I only had a heart. Cowardly Lion, Wyoming Jenning. Brian, a famous... Williams Jennings, William Thank Jennings you. Bryant. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm but I go. do like the idea that Wyoming I mean, Jennings Bryant... Wyoming is a, po- is a sounds hot, like a playwright. hotbed. Yeah. They're also the first state to give women the right to vote. Yeah. Nice. Go Wyoming. Um, William Jennings Bryan. You know what? Okay. Uh, William Jennings Bryan, a famous politician and populist presidential candidate in, 19, in 1896 and 1900 um, for monetary reform and a terrific orator, i.e. Roar... Brian was attacked as being somewhat cowardly for not supporting the U.S. war with Spain. Your Majesty, if you were king, you wouldn't be afraid of anything? Not nobody! Not know-how! Not even a rhinoceros? Imposterous! How about a hippopotamus? Why, I'd trash him from top to bottom us. Supposing you met an elephant? I'd wrap him up in cellophane. What if it were a brontosaurus? I'd show him who was king of the forest. How? How? Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast away? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? What makes the hot and top so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You could say that again. As a populist presidential candidate, he sought to go to the capital city, the Emerald City. Brian's famous 
cross of gold speech is posted below. Don't worry, I won't do that. Ruby slippers. These are silver in the book. Hollywood changed them to ruby red to take advantage of the new Technicolor used in the movie version. Evidently ignorant of the meaning of the silver. Or maybe not. Maybe there's some purpose. Um, Brian and many other greenbacks, monetary, monetary reformers supporting use of debt-free U.S. notes like Lincoln's greenbacks to increase the money supply and thereby end the Depression then, shifted their tactics to the promotion of adding silver to the lawful coinage of America. This is really fa fascinating. Um, no, they're wrong about Oz because I already told you why. And, uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, there's a lot more here, but you know what? We're going to have to do the follow-up, the good witch, the bad witch. We have a lot more. We're going to do that later. Anyway. That was a cool little stroll down the yellow brick road of history. Follow the yellow brick road. 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 Follow, 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 follow the yeah. Yeah, right. So now back to the DSA. Yeah, back to the DSA, <laughs> the real land of Oz. Um, I was I was looking at a, a yeah, the membership did really soar after the election, and and can, as you were saying, you were, who was watching that that night? Like, were people actually observing the numbers going up, or did you just hear that afterwards? I just I heard that afterwards, and I remember going to a meeting right before the election, and I, there was maybe thirty or forty people there. It was a Brooklyn wide meeting. And everyone was like, this is so great. There's so many people here. And then the meeting we had after the election had, I think, like 200 people there. I was there. Awesome. I was in the audience, yeah. And the at the May Day space in Bushwick? Yeah. Awesome. And we talked to the person next to us about yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were on stage. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this. This is the elephant in the room. Lots of people talk about how left the left is white, bro-ish, Jewish, male, straight. What can you tell us about this? Um, well, I am mostly none of those things, <laughs> and here I am. Um, I think a lot of people like to take that and say that it's as if it's something unique to leftist organizations and use it as this really strong criticism when it is a prevailing problem over all of a lot of sectors. But the thing that makes um, DSA really great and maybe more leftist organizations really great is they often acknowledge this problem and they're taking steps to address it. Um, for instance, with DSA, we have a socialist feminist working group and the women and um, in addition to people who identify as women and gender nonconforming individuals who are in the socialist feminist working group are leading the charge on the New York Health Act. This is a huge issue. This is single payer in New York. Um, you know, healthcare is like what everyone's talking about now. And it's women who are leading this charge in DSA. And DSA has specifically and intentionally created a space for women. And when they did that, a lot more women um, joined DSA. My, my hot take to that is always like, yeah, the world is like that in general. It's a problem. The left does not have a... The left hasn't solved that problem. Neither have Republicans, the right wing, or liberals. But mm -hmm. liberals are much more savvy about optics. I'm sorry, Republicans yeah. though. When we look, like uh, we've got Condoleezza Rice, we've got uh, you know, Alan Ke uh, Alan Tequila Keys, Tequila. Yeah, Colin Powell. Wow. Uh, thank you. Yes, you know they're doing they're doing great. There should <laughs> there's representation at it's, the highest levels. Right, Tequila yeah. Tequila. Oh, uh, yeah, Thomas. Clarence Thomas. That's does, the one. And does great things, not just for black men, but black women like Anita Hill. Yeah. Totally put her on the map. Thank totally. you, Clarence. No one knew yeah. who she was before. Exactly, yeah. Can you tell us what, about this health care act that you guys are working on? And that, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if that's not intersectionality, I don't know what is. That's real intersectionality. None of this Clinton 
stuff. Can you got what's intersectionality again? Can we uh, can we uh, sure. define that? I do you want me to or I, it's up yeah, to, go okay. ahead. It's the overlap. It's a lens through which to look at multiple sources of oppression. So mm. an intersectional analysis takes into account not just gender. It was born by it was basically the brainchild of Kimber, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, mm-hmm. and it's. She was a law professor, actually, and a lawyer, and was on and represented um, was on Lee, uh, Anita Hill's defense team. Una abogada. Did she have a defense team? Anita Hill. I. She did something with Anita Hill. I mean, that's a deep cut. I that's... was in middle school. I wasn't paying any attention. <laughs> I, I was. I was furious. I was furious with Clarence Thomas, and I remember him saying, "I. I cannot recall. I have no recollection." That was when I learned that term. She was critiquing the kind of white bougie feminist lens through which lots of problems were were viewed. So, for instance, if you talk about um, equal pay for women and you just talk about it as the difference between a white man and a white woman, you're not allowing for the you're not recognizing the increased oppression, increased gap, pay wage gap, wage gap between a white man and a woman of color. And even within that, there's, you know, black women get paid one level and then even lower are Latino women. Now, of course, you want to be intersectional without being kind of divisive, right? So we have to kind of recognize those things without being too micro-targeting because that's another thing that, that the Clinton campaign kind of did, right? Where they they, they, they were like, they were intersectional in the worst way and that they kind of like uh, divided and conquered people. So would you say it's like uh, it's like Hillary going on, um, on the radio, on a hip-hop radio station and being like, I got hot sauce in yeah. my bag. That's pandering. Swag. <laughs> right. That's an attempt. That's like, what is that? That's like trying to be intersectional. But it's like dog whistle, but like not dog whistle in like. A bad way. It's like dog whistle in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, it's a benef- benevolent dog whistling. Yeah, wow, dogs are playing a lot, a large role in this episode. This is the canine episode. It is, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that I. So when I say intersectional, I mean that there the it is. Some people will be like, "Why the hell would a socialist feminist group be working on housing? Because housing on its face is not necessarily seen as a women's issue, but it is." Yeah. Our feminism is a feminism that is intersectional and looks at all of the things together. So that's why, again, when people say we have this great piece by Susan Bordeaux, The Guardian, about the destruction of Hillary Clinton, which was caused by Bernie Sanders and a gaggle of millennial feminists, according Mm -hmm. to her, um, when she goes over how Bernie Sanders is no more of a feminist than Hillary Clinton and does not even bring up his position on raising the minimum wage to 15... That's not intersectional because the minimum wage affects women more than men, mm-hmm. first of all. But even if it didn't, it would be important to intersectional analysis. And it, I mean, by having an analysis that just focuses on one issue at a time just doesn't really give that issue um, the adequate weight it deserves. And any solution you come to that problem isn't going to adequately solve the problem. Right. So like like with your um, example with the $15 minimum wage, it's it's mainly women who are working in service jobs where they're getting paid the minimum wage. Um, and when you talk about housing, you know, it's oftentimes women who are who are being evicted from their homes um, as a housing lawyer. Most of my clients are women and they're the ones being evicted from their homes. They because 
they have low-wage job, jobs, they have a harder time paying their rent, they're more likely to be evicted for their homes. The reason why they have, they're more likely to be in low-wage jobs is because in our capitalist society, we devalue women. So this is sort of like the intersectionality of like housing, labor, and women. Whereas if we just look at sort of in like your classic, what you're bringing up, um, the basically like lean-in politics of just pantsuits like, oh, well, yeah. pantsuits, feminism, of... Well, it's just, you know, we're just looking at the pay the pay gap and that, oh, well, if, if women just, like, put themselves forward a little bit more, then um, we'd all be fine. They got to be mean to get corner offices. It's microaggressions. They have to fight. The fight is all about microaggressions, which I'm not dismissing, but it's not. it goes beyond microaggressions. Yeah, and that, I mean, and that's just, like, I mean, it's, it's a prevailing problem everywhere, but to segregate that to the corporate world and to say that the solution to like basically ba- blame women and to say the solution is to lean in without looking at how like this philosophy does not take into consideration working class people that doesn't take into consideration that the profit that uh, is made in a capitalist society by devaluing women it just it right i mean i i also think that it, it there's some women blaming, but even at its best, most like solidaristic sisterhood level, it is just speaking to a very small percentage of women, right? Yeah. And bless, I mean, I'm glad Sheryl Sandberg has done stuff to achieve some kind of success and parity, but like, I'm more concerned with the, like, she is, I, I'm not for like unequal pay for really rich people either. I just think that that's not the priority is to raise the working raise the minimum wage, right? Something that actually affects the lives of lots of people um, and makes a real difference in people's lives. I mean, you can chew gum and do this. I guess you can chew gum and walk at the same time, right? But But I think it's also about leveling the playing field, right? right? That um, in addition to higher wages, but having more employee protections, not being able to just fire someone at will. I mean, this affects men and women. Um, but I think by sort of just like focusing on uh, the pay gap or something like that, you're not looking at how capitalism benefits by people just focusing on their wages and people not sort of rising up and trying to have a more equal footing to their to their bosses or their CEOs. So what would a, another thing that would need to be looked at be? Um in the just basically in the workplace? Yeah. I mean like I think you're right. I'm just so what are what are the things we have to look at besides equal pay? I mean, I think it's it's sort of so the number of unions have really right. gone down. I think it's increasing the number of unions, increasing the amount of protections that you have um as an employee, the benefits you receive um, in addition to kind of health benefits and stuff like that, which wouldn't be an issue, obviously, if they were single payer, right. but also um, issues of sort of workplace discrimination, injuries on the workplace. But I think also something else that would um, level the playing field is if you had the cooperative governance and management of industries. Um, where it's not just about what your boss wants to do and the value of your labor doesn't go all to the the CEOs and the shareholders, but that it's a cooperative governance where everyone's benefiting from it, everyone's benefiting from um, any profit that is made, the laborers are benefiting from that, and through that you have more of an equal power and you... and you know, women working in the workplace are going to have a voice in what's happening. They're going to get 
um, better wages. They're going to get better benefits. They're going to get better work conditions. So what does that look like concretely, right? So we, we know the steps for single-payer health care, right? We have Bernie Sanders and John Conyers working on bills in the House and the Senate. You can hear an episode from last week with Adam Gaffney, which was really great. What are you calling for? Is it the um, means of reproduction, taking over the means of reproduction for the proletariat? I'm not even being facetious. I don't know what... Reproduction? Like... Freudian slip on my... I, my head really is in the gutter today. Yeah. No, Controlling production. women's bodies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah That's take, what we need the to The DSA wants you to control women's bodies. <laughs> yeah. Take the means of reproduction. Yes, exactly. Um, that's what happens when we have too many men. They take the means of reproduction. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean... I'm not, I mean, not being dismissive. I mean, I think that the things that you were just talking about, like, are those frameworks that we should aspire towards? I mean, where are we, right? Because I think what makes the DSA and, and Sanders and Democratic Socialists cool is that there's the overarching ideology that is more radical than mm-hmm. than what we're achieving now. It's like that's always there as kind of a guiding light, even mm-hmm. though Sanders doesn't say that stuff. But we all know that behind closed doors he is more radical. Yeah. But his appeal and what makes him a successful politician is precisely that he says um, – you know, these aren't radical ideas. They are overwhelmingly popular. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that, like, we all probably have ideas that aren't yet popular. Um, but now, they could be. I mean, that's another strength that Sanders has, is mm-hmm. he has an amazing ability to communicate things in a way Make that makes it accessible. Mainstream. Yeah, mainstream. So, but what are what would this stuff look like? Like, what would it look like for housing? What would it look like for labor? Yeah, so I think that's a really great question. It's one thing that I really like about DSA, and one of the reasons why I joined is that it a lot of what you see in DSA is that we set out what like sort of the standard and ideal and the social the democratic socialist vision is. So, um, for instance, in housing, uh, the democratic socialist vision would be more. I mean, for speaking a little bit more personally, would I think it's abolishing private property? This the commodification of of property and of homes. I mean, I don't even want to call it property. The commodification of a person's home, a basic human need. Um, so it's, it's abolishing that um, and having... But DSA and the Housing Working Group understands that obviously something like that is not going to happen tomorrow. Um, so we are working... So right now we're working on ending the development of the Bedford Union Armory. This is an armory in Crown Heights. Um, currently there's, it's a vacant armory, but, uh, New York city wants to develop the armory. So to basically become luxury housing and on paper, they say something about 40% of the units are affordable, quote unquote affordable. Um, but the reality is out of 300 apartment units that would be in there, uh, less than 20 would be affordable to the residents of crown neighbor crown Heights that lives there. Uh, so this basically is a project that would lead to further, the further gentrification of Crown Heights and would lead to the displacement of the people who currently live there and have been living there their whole lives. So while DSA understands that we're not going to kind of abolish private property tomorrow, that we're not going to have entirely public housing tomorrow, um, we can take these incremental steps to further prevent the commodification and the profit-making off of housing that we have right now. So if we can stop the development of the Bedford Union Armory, we can help impede uh, the gentrification of Crown Heights and the profit-making off of housing in Crown Heights. Um, And the other thing to keep in mind is that, so when you have, when you develop a place like the Bedford Union Armory, uh, sure, you have a, you will have a bunch of rich people moving into the Bedford Union Armory, but the 
sort of bigger point that displaces people is that the the market value of the surrounding places increases. And if your um, housing isn't rent stabilized, then it's really easy for a landlord to kick you out once your lease expires. And that's often what happens. And thousands of people get displaced because of it. Uh, so, you know, so DSA is working on ending this development um, while still keeping in mind the vision of the democratic socialist vision of housing, of having more social housing and cooperative housing. Um, and I would say that also when it comes to labor, so there's a labor branch of DSA too, uh, that, you know, that fight, I mean, similar to housing, but that fight is super contentious right now with so many anti-labor people and the Trump administration. And so, um, the, the vision is to have more unions, to have the cooperative governance of industries, um, to have maybe certain industries uh, owned by the government uh, for some people. and But it's sort of in the meantime, one of the biggest fights is to stop the right to work legislation, nationwide legislation. Um, the most like the most euphemistic term. I mean, the right is so good at this stuff. The right is amazing at that, and it kills me. The right to work, the right to choose your school, right. and all this school crap. Choice, right? If I didn't, if I didn't know any, if someone was like, "Yeah, do yeah, you support right to work?" Hell yeah, yeah. I support right You're to work. So we should that. all be working. Yeah. Meanwhile, what does Obama say? Public option. That just sounds yeah. like it's out of a gulag or something. Yeah. Didn't even give us good. I mean, <laughs> why not? If you're going to do that, at least give us some real legit socialist healthcare. Yeah. I think it's because he actually didn't want it to be. You know, I used to think, yeah. like, this is an ineptitude. And now, the older I get, you know, with every passing month, the more I think it really is, like Frank, uh, like Thomas Frank says, it's not really that Democrats are bad at negotiating. It's that they want a lot of the neoliberal, yeah. deregulating things that Republicans want. Definitely. I mean, Obama was a neoliberal, right. is oh, yeah. a neoliberal. Oh, yeah. um, Hillary Clinton is a neoliberal. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and I, th- I think that's something to keep in mind when you look at something like, Obamacare and some of the policies that have been promoted by Democrats is that um, is this actually bolstering the working class? Is this actually something that puts people over profit? And oftentimes when you really look at it and you look at the people who are contributing to the legislation and helping them write the legislation, it's not the, that's not the case. Um, so, right. and that's just sad. I mean, it's funny. I remember uh, I heard Bernie Sanders speak at... Um, uh, what's it called? The architecture place in the village? Um, Cooper Union. Cooper Union. And he said something like, you know, it's not, it's nothing to sneeze at. The number of people impression. who, oh, thank you. <laughs> the number of people that Obamacare had employed, right? So he, mm-hmm. his thing is like, yeah, it's better than nothing. And, and you know, I think one, one of the things that, that some people think, people have this, like to pretend that everyone on the left has this better than, it won't get better until it gets worse view, Mm -hmm. which is not that common. I also think, though, this is such an unhot take, but you know what? Like, a lot of people were afraid to say that certain things would be better under Trump because they were afraid to look like they were being callous, insensitive, privileged. I kind of think you can say the two things at the same time. Like, a lot of stuff is going to get worse and has gotten worse at Trump, and I'm not pretending that that's not the case. I'm not pretending. I mean, just on a very, very visceral um, and concrete level i mean hate crimes right there's no way you can have such vitriol being being said i think actually sometimes the left kind of downplays this Mm -hmm. but it is a sub it is an important difference like there is i think people are less safe walking around Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. people of color 
people who look like they're Mexican immigrants, people who look like they're Muslims. I mean, this, as always happens, people who are Sikhs get attacked because no one knows, yeah. you know. Um, but I do think that some things are coming to the surface. I think people are getting organized in ways that they weren't and activated in ways that they weren't by when Obama was president. You know, again, Definitely. Thomas Frank's book says that the opposition ceased to oppose. But Right. Well, does that happens whenever Democrats are in charge is that right. there's like people go to sleep yeah. for yeah. four to eight years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's definitely a silver lining right. of Donald Trump being president. I mean, it's. <laughs> Right. Um, no one was adv- – I mean, I think the myth is that we were advocating for that. Like, the yeah. myth is that I mean, that I think we- maybe some people were. They're just, like, burn the whole system yeah. down. Yeah. But, but – um, not Certainly not – it's not as, as – not as representative of the left as, as liberals and and conservatives like to claim it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's it's silly to not talk about what it has – you know, the, the the silver linings that it has created. You're not – again, you're not, like, sugarcoating all the horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's just important to take stock. Yeah, I mean, I think people get really excited, you know, just from the Women's March to the immigrant strike and all of this. Like, people get really excited and, like, motivated to be – to not just fight for this, but to be part of a larger movement to fight for that. Um, and I think it's sad to think that if Hillary Clinton was president, there wouldn't be as much of that, even though there should be. In some ways, there should be more, because then you have, like, the cloak over your eyes with having a Democratic president. And you might be like, oh, things are okay. Yeah, that's, but, yeah. Right. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you can get the ideas that you organize more under a non... As my uncle said, you know, there's a difference between neoliberals and neo-fascists. And mm-hmm. you, can, you always got... You win greater rights and gains under uh, neo, neoliberals and neo-fascists. But then he said, after Trump won, he said, you know, I think that we're going to see a real opening with Bernie because I think that Trump's going to be promising things that are impossible to deliver and we're going to see like a, a gap between reality and promises that we haven't seen since the 1940s with communists. Anyway, pretty spot on. Um, and uh, should I join the DSA? Hell yeah, you should join the DSA. Should we have a historic moment where I actually join that on film? Or you can Facebook Live it. Audio? Okay, so you no. You can do like an IG video. All right, yeah. What's IG? Oh, Instagram video. All right, yeah, you're right. I, I wanted to do it with Aaron here, but you're right. I, to, I should respect Aaron's time. And oh, you want to you do, should, it, you you just, do it here uh, with Aaron? But Go you for You should it. just credit me with okay, uh, I'll having... Okay, yeah, yeah, Like, I joined because of it. Yeah, yeah. Converted, do you get a <laughs> kickback every time somebody joins <laughs> under you? Is yeah, it a, I get... A dog? I get, yeah. Everyone, I get, everyone gets a dog. Oh, it'd be so cute. And anything, any myths that you want to dispel about socialism, democratic socialism, um, <clears throat> the difference between socialism and democratic socialism, what you want people to take away from this, what people can do from this? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, sort of like where to start. There's so many myths about socialism. Um, and I think I think one of the really unfortunate things about capitalism is that it has normalized this idea that capitalism is the way that it is and that there isn't any other way and that the free market's the best way to do things. And even though there's aspects of it that suck, it's better than the alternative. Um, and, you know... The biggest thing is just try socialism, right? That's the big hashtag going around now is hashtag try socialism. And socialism ultimately is about, or at least the way I say it is that socialism is about democracy within your economy. Um, as Americans, we talk so much about democracy and freedom. And 
socialism is seeing is putting that into your economy and saying that you should have a voice and is what is and what's happening to happening to you economically in your workplace um in in your housing and all the sort of different aspects that we talked about and it's really about bolstering the working class uh having an economy and a government that functions for people and not for profit um and that all of the policies and legislations that are promoted should be keeping that in mind. Um, socialism is not about stealing things from people because you can't steal something from someone who never should have owned it in the first place, like your home. It's justice, um, Robin Hood style. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it really is because if if you know, again, not to keep going back to this, but a woman who has lived in her home for 30 years, that's her home. And why should someone who bought a piece of paper, a deed, and has never set foot in that home be able to take that from her because she can't pay rent and he, ne- the landlord never makes repairs and it's just pure profit. Um, right. It's disgusting. So and we have socialism <clears throat> up. We have corporate socialism, right? We have all these subsidies for corporations. You know, people are allowed to not pay taxes on this side or the other. Um, a state tax, you know. Yeah. The, the state is, it, it's this myth of free market. There, the, the government intervenes on behalf of yeah. the rich. Yeah. I mean, I want to call it socialism, but certainly corporations, rich people get a lot of subsidies, a lot of tax breaks, not right. paying the proper tax they should on capital gains and stuff like that. And um, a lot of, you know, we need. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is not just equality, but equity and having a progressive tax so that... um, What is the difference between equality and equity? Well, I mean, so it kind of depends on what you're talking about. But some people might see like something like a flat tax as being equal because everyone's being taxed at the same rate. But if I make $100 a month, being taxed at 10% hurts me a lot more than someone being paid million dollars a month or something like that to put it in very simplistic terms so an equitable is like you might treat people differently but the end result is that is more equality right um so i think that's that is a part of socialism too is that it's you know it's about seeing people where they are and making sure they have what they need to live a life of dignity um and that includes your basic rights of healthcare housing, food, security. Um, and that shouldn't be something that is only afforded to people who can afford it. That should be something that's afforded to everybody and that can be accomplished uh, through socialism. Right. Um, I should have said corporate welfare more than socialism. And yeah, I, when corporate I said welfare, there's socialism yeah. for the rich, I, I'm being somewhat facetious because by the standard, you know, people who hate socialism the way that they frame it and say it's evil, they are in certain ways living, receiving those benefits. But yeah, it is corporate welfare. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot before, but this idea that, like, one of the hot takes from liberals is that universal programs are bad because they help everyone. I don't know if you've heard this or Mm -hmm. seen this. I mean, it's just, like, it's the most out-of-touch and privileged position, and clearly no one who says that has ever, like... If we give everybody free lunch at school, then everybody no one gets has a, free lunch. <laughs> a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at school. Everybody gets one. Well, this uh, rich kids, uh, rich parents, uh, the kids are going to get the free peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and uh, that would be unjust. Exactly. Yeah, they're little. That's the yeah. argument, and that of course is because they don't believe in universal programs, or they're so hateful of Sanders 
that they now don't believe in it. Gabe rolls his eyes. He thinks I'm making it up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, though, that this is the big thing. It's like, forget forget your val- the, the theory or the principles. Like, do you not remember that Newt Gingrich called people welfare queens, mm-hmm. not social security queens? Which is just utter bull crap. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is bull crap. But the, my point in that was if I was like, well, he was right. So we got to get rid of it. <laughs> no, but my, I bring that up because it's like an example of how when a program is universal, like Social Security, people mm-hmm. don't touch it. They don't stigmatize you because everyone gets it, yeah. right? It's just if you care about these rights for the people who pretend that they care about low-income people so much that they don't want them to have to have stuff that other people who aren't low-income get, they're they're totally full of it. Because if you care about these people getting those rights, what makes those programs way less vulnerable and more sustainable and more popular and less vulnerable to being cut by the um, by Republicans or whatever is when they're universal programs mm-hmm. that everyone likes, then they're popular. Mm-hmm. I think it's really like you had. I think it's really important to put it in the framework of rights because if you see something right. as a right, then that's something everybody should have, um, and that's get that is lost when you commodify something, and some people can buy it and some people can't. Or charity too, right? I think mm-hmm. if you see it as a ch- as charity, yeah, exactly, yeah. Then you're just being nice. It's right. a concession. Yeah, and it's not that that person deserves that. Right. Um, and it's an option. It's like a cherry on top. And then, the and then also people don't want to take it too. Like some right. people stigmatized, right? Yeah. So I mean, I've had clients who don't want to go to public assistance or whatever to get help with their rent, um, and I'm just like, no, like th- this is here for you. It's okay. And they and they just feel a lot of shame in that, which I think is just like how we've been bred to feel in this capitalist neoliberal society that says that we shouldn't, we should be pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and if you work hard you can do it and it's so it's your fault right. that it's you're in this your situation your personal failure as opposed to systemic exactly but if things are like if if we have universal health care no one's going to be like look if i go into the emergency room just just let me pay for this right. okay no because everyone's going right. to have it and it's a right and there's no shame in right. that yeah i love the idea of poor people being like this is so unfair i can't believe that that rich guy is getting free health care too it's so messed up <laughs> and people who want to start uh, DSA chapters. Is there a certain number you have to have? What What's the deal with that? Do you? Um, you can just if you go to dsausa.org, you can find out how you can start a chapter. Um, I think the number of chapters in DSA has tripled recently. Wow. Yeah. And we have a branch in every state, but I believe South Dakota and Delaware. So Delaware, you live in get those on states. it. What's the deal? You got Joe Biden distracting you or something? <laughs> He's pretty funny. Um. And any tips for someone said what what to do in a place where you don't have a lot of like natural I guess DSA allies? How do you build the chapter? Do you have any tips for that? Um, I would say you know if you are a socialist, if you are following DSA, start talking to your friends and family about it. And I think one of the best things we can do now is bringing socialism into the mainstream in a good way and and taking back the word socialism and normalizing it and showing people that this isn't a scary thing, that, that this isn't, um, you know, life's going to be in black and white and stuff right. like that. But this is about the power of the people. It's about dismantling fairness. capitalism. It's about fairness. Right. And it's about putting people before profits. 
And, I mean, just start talking to people. Start normalizing it. Recruit people. Recruit your comrades. And then from there, right. start start a DSA chapter. I think that if people aren't already, though, kind of sy- sympathetic to it, I would, I mean, I'm not DSA yet. I will be by the end of the night. But I think that even, I wouldn't even say that this, I mean, I, not to sugarcoat it, but I wouldn't start with the dismantling capitalism. I would just start with, like, <laughs> health care for all. Like, yeah. do you think you, do you want health care to be provided for you? Do you want the the taxes that we already pay to be going to stuff like healthcare as opposed to, you know, far, farm wars or whatever? Or do you want people to be rich, rich people to be pay, paying more than, they're sh- than they are as opposed to less? Do you think tax cuts for the, whatever? Or um, fairness, do you believe in fairness? Do you like, if they like Bernie, that's a straight shot. You got it right there. Uh, we're doing the, the worst take of the week on the Katie Halper Show right now. And, and the worst take of the week, I'm going to have to say, goes to Susan Bordeaux. Whose piece, The Destruction of Hillary Clinton, Sexism, Sanders, and the Millennial Feminists, was published by The Guardian. It's an extract from her book. And in this extract from her book, the sub-headline says, Susan Bordeaux asks how the most qualified candidate ever to run for president lost a seemingly unlosable election. There's a lot to unpack here. And of course, this, this article did really, really well. It was very, very popular. The major issue that I have with this article is that, one, it... It has contradicting theses. One is that Bernie Sanders is exceptional, has radical politics that this author is still okay with, despite them being kind of radical, atypically progressive. And the other one is that he's just like Hillary politically. And you can't actually have those two things at the same time. And what we're going to see, I think, from this article is this is something that we see with a lot of women, a lot of people in general, which is this like personal identification with Hillary Clinton. That's fine. But I think the danger is when your personal journey kind of eclipses what the policy, which affects more people, that's a bit problematic, and it's privileged. All right, sorry, I'd say that. So I just thought I'd go through some of the best parts of it. She starts by saying, Many books have been written about the way racial differences among feminists both divided and pushed feminist thinking and practice forward over the past several decades. In the 2016 election, however, it was not race, but generation that was the dynamic factor among left-leaning women, women like me who experienced many cultural battles in the gender wars firsthand, from the first scornful comments that journalists had heaped on women libbers to public shaming of Anita Hill, brought to the 2016 campaign a personal knowledge of the fragility of feminist accomplishments and an identification with Hillary that was deeper and longer than any current headlines. So, I mean, it's worth considering, Susan... Like how much your personal identification with Clinton and your shared experiences prevented you from seeing her current policies and the current headlines. So that actually makes, I think, the women who didn't have the identification with Hillary Clinton more rational and less self-absorbed. I'm just going to say it. I said it. There, I said it. Yeah, I mean, I think that article is just really is disrespecting generations and sort of saying that as younger women... That we kind of we can't have a mind of our own, and this is really a generational thing, and we don't understand history as opposed to like you're saying, sort of we can more maybe presumably more objectively look at the candidates. Right. Um, and I mean, I just like I feel like Democrats and liberals are trying to find every way that they can say Hillary won for a reason other than the fact that Hillary Clinton is Hillary Clinton. Hillary lost. I'm sorry. <laughs> what, exactly. That's what they're trying yeah. to say. They're in denial. They're trying. Well, I guess she won the popular vote. No, right, no, she did. Right, yeah, right, but right, basically, yeah. they're in denial. They're trying to come up with every reason: Bernie Sanders, Russia, whatever it is. Right. 
that to say that Hillary, the reason why Donald Trump won isn't because Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate. Right. And and Bernie Sanders has gone into trouble for saying that the Democrats lost the election. It's not that Trump won it. Uh, yeah, well, that's kind of true. And, and Democrats are upset at him, which is like when an alcoholic is upset that someone's telling them they're drinking too much, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I mean, the Democratic Party is upset that Bernie Sanders is a better candidate. That he that he can fund a whole campaign without using corporations. Meanwhile, I mean, like, and they also don't want that to be the norm, right? Right. Like, if that's the norm, they're going to make a lot less money, right? Or they and they're going to have to work for the people. Exactly, (laughs) they're going to have to actually appeal to to working people as opposed to Goldman Sachs. So, also, I, you know what? It's it's kind of rich that she brings up Anita Hill because it's like. You know who shamed Anita Hill and called her a little bit slutty and a little bit nutty? David Brock, major ally of the Clintons, mm-hmm. when he was a, a, a hitman for the right, as he called himself, as opposed to a hitman for the Clintons. Uh, he's the guy who runs, like, Share Blue, mm-hmm. um, Media Matters, this in- control the record, cor- for instance, correct the record. Um, you know, all the our horrible people on Twitter, like Eric Bowler, Melissa M- McEwen of Shake's tweets. And you know what? Also, like, lady, I watched the Anita Hill the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. I was devastated. I was very mm-hmm. angry about it. So, and I, I do, I, you know, I actually do identify with parts of Hillary. But again, I realize that that's like a personal thing. I get, I resonate, her, her, the double standards that she faces resonates with me. I get that feeling where you're bitchy for doing something that a guy is just um, professional or ambitious mm-hmm. for doing. But again, that doesn't eclipse my politics, right? My like yeah. political beliefs. I mean, it's two separate issues in a lot of ways yeah, too. Yeah, right. Like, you know what? Uh, Clarence Thomas also faced racism, and Margaret Thatcher, I'm sure, faced sexism. I also yeah, think they have atrocious politics. Suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I also sometimes like to think about if there was a female Donald Trump, how people would receive that. Like, right. could you imagine if a woman said, "Like, you know, I could just grab guys by right. the dick; right, they don't yeah. care. I can do what I want." Uh, he'd have people my be vote. Like, what? <laughs> just kidding. Oh God. Then she also says she says of younger women that they didn't witness the complicated story of how the 1994 crime bill came to be passed, or the origins of the quote-unquote super predator label, not coined by Hillary and not referring to black youth, but rather to powerful older drug dealers. Okay, Susan, you know who I'm going to trust on this issue more than you? I'm talking to you, Susan. Is uh, Michelle Alexander, who wrote the new uh, Jim Crow. And this is mm-hmm. how she described that in an article in The Nation. Um, she said that Hillary Clinton used racially coded rhetoric to cast black children as animals. They are not just gangs of kids anymore, she said. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. I mean, when you hear the whole quote. Yeah. Not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. It also just doesn't take into consideration intersectionality. Right. To bring it full circle and just like, you're a criminal because you're a criminal as opposed to you're a criminal because of we have no safety net for people, that people don't have adequate jobs, so they turn to crime because... Right. Lack having, of access, yeah, lack of... Exactly. Up, right. School-to-prison pipelines, something yes. like that. We're not School addressing those issues. Pipelines, right. And then she says... Oh, this is, this is interesting. So after two decades of harsh schooling in the ways of politics and the media, Hillary herself was no longer the outspoken feminist who chastised reporters when they questioned her life choices, but a cautious campaigner who measured her words with care. I knew just what my graduate students meant when I asked her... Uh, how millennial feminists saw Hillary, and she said, quote, a white lady, end quote. A white woman herself, she wasn't referring to the color of Hillary's skin or even her racial politics, but rather 
what was perceived as her membership in the dominant class, all cleaned up and normalized, aligned with the establishment power than, rather than with forces of resistance, and stylistically coded her tightly coiffed hair, her neat, boring pantsuits, her circumspection, with her membership in that class. When I looked at Hillary, I saw someone very different, but I understood the basis for my student's perception. Okay, the basis for your student's perception is reality. You're literally saying, <laughs> I get it, my students looked at Hillary Clinton, her physical appearance, and her policies, and decided to judge her on, not her physical appearance in a bad way, like, her, not in, I mean, the way that they do with male male uh, politicians too, right? There's there's coding in there, but forget that part. Like, she's basically saying, you're basically saying, Susan, that you get why your students thought she was the way that she presented herself. Like, Again, you're you're expecting other people to like vote for the a phantom of who Hillary was, not who Hillary Clinton is today. You expect people to vote for the idea of yeah, Hillary Clinton, right? Which maybe Hillary Clinton was closer to in the past. It is. I do think everything's harder for women. I do. I mean, I think that like a working class man faces different obstacles from those that Hillary faces, right? But anyway, I just think it's funny that I understand the basis for my students' perception. Like again, your her students are perceiving the candidate who was campaigning for president. Again, that's where the whole identifying with Hillary with a candidate gets you in trouble because you're, yeah. like, attached to this person emotionally and you come off as sentimental and more invested in Hillary's journey as it resonates with your journey than you are in actual politics. And you're not rationally looking at the work that they've done and right. the policies that they're putting forth. Yeah. Um, and something like single-payer universal health care that Bernie Sanders was pr- promoting, that would help women a lot more than Obamacare would. Right, right. Or um, the $15 minimum wage. Again, yeah. like, don't come at me with any of your feminist critiques of anyone supporting Sanders if you don't at least take that into account. So, yeah, Susan, I think your students are the ones who need to patiently understand the basis for their professor's perception. Any rift between feminist generations, however, would almost certainly have been healed by Donald Trump's outrageous comments and behavior had younger progressives not become bonded during the primary to a Democratic male hero who both supported the issues they were most passionate about and offered young women independence from the stale and, in their view, defunct feminist past. Okay, this is hilarious because basically this woman is defending Clinton and says that Clinton's type of feminism is not defunct, but it is stale. <laughs> like, why Why are you making an argument for Sanders and against uh, Clinton? But of course, that's not where the, or the article goes. And then she says, you know, it's because we didn't want to play. We didn't want to play bridge with Gloria Steinem and Madeleine Albright or Hillary Clinton. We wanted to hang out with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders. I mean, I think he's great. But you don't look at Bernie Sanders like, oh, he's like a cool dude. Like, I want to do what the cool people are doing. What made Bernie Sanders great was his platform and the actions he's taken taken in the past. And I think that, like, I think he has a hips, an unintentional hipster aesthetic. Yeah. And I think he does come across as incredibly anti-charismatically charismatic and authentic, I do, but it's not, that's not the only, if he had those, that style and his positions were like, I want people to pay more for their health care and I yeah. want to lower the minimum wage, he would not be been successful. Yeah, right? I mean, like, like, and pe- like all the things that people find charming about him, like, like his facial expressions yeah. during the debate, yeah. and stuff like that, people would be like, oh, like, he's a real jerk. Yeah, no. If, if he had these bad policies. Right, exactly, yeah, right, right, right. Or like, you know, I as a Jew, I have to say, I never play this, but I want to be like, why are you being an anti-Semite? He, go, he wags his finger. That's a Jewish thing. Let me tell you. <laughs> and then this is my favorite part of the article, though. Before I go any further, let me put my own cards on the table. Thank you, Susan, because up till now, you've been, like, totally objective, yeah. distant. We have no what idea. what. Thinking. Yeah. Wh- who, who are you? Do you like Hillary or do you like Bernie Sanders? Because I don't really know. Would have been a very jarring juxtaposition without that heads up. 
And then she says, the destruction of Hillary Clinton, I firmly believe, while propelled by a perfect storm of sexism, and partisan politics and media madness, was bookended by two immensely powerful assaults. One was the inappropriate, inaccurate, and inflammatory interference in the general election by FBI Director James Comey. The other occurred much earlier during the primaries. But its consequences are felt even today. I know I will make some of my younger feminist colleagues and other left-leaners furious, which was distressing to me then and still is. Yeah, I have a feeling you're going to be able to get over this distressing thing and and (laughs) go forward, right? These people in so many ways are my natural colleagues, and most are as upset as I am by Trump's victory, but they played a bigger role in the thin edge, not a landslide as Trump would have us believe that gave Trump the election. Okay, if we're going to talk about thin edges, you know what else could have, like, made a difference for that? Campaign in Wisconsin. Spending less money on media and more money on, say, like, Latino outreach, Mm -hmm. which you were asked to do, Hillary Clinton, and you, like, gave them a terrible fraction of what they were asked, the people who were doing Latino outreach. Um, or maybe registering any of the 600,000 would-be black voters in Florida, where she lost by 100,000 votes. Or just promoting oh, policies right. Programs, right. that help the working class instead of stuff like the TPP. Right, right. How about coming out earlier for the against the TPP? How about not having to be pushed on $15 an hour? My favorite yeah, hot $12 take, an hour is ridiculous. Yeah, it's absurd. And, and like, by the time $15 is implemented, like, in, in New York, we're going to – it should be higher. It yeah, of course. go with the rate of inflation. It's just such an obvious no-brainer. Like, do you really want to be seen as a candidate who supports a lower federal minimum wage? And and if you take into consideration inflation, the right. the minimum wage at 12 is lower than it was in the 60s. Right. For while Trump supporters hooted and cheered for their candidate, for giving him every lie, every crime, every bit of disgusting behavior, too many young Democrats made it very clear in newspaper and internet interviews and polls and in the mainstream media that they were only voting for Hillary Clinton as the lesser of two evils, holding their noses, tears still streaming down their faces over the primary defeat of the person they felt truly deserved their votes. Doesn't the whole, like, holding your nose thing happen, like, every election? Like, because we live in a two-party yeah. system. Then she says some didn't vote at all, which don't know where she got that from. And as much as I'm in agreement with many of his ideas, Bernie Sanders splintered and ultimately sabotaged the Democratic Party. Not because he chose to run against Hillary Clinton, but because of how he ran against her. Penis first, obviously. <laughs> I think that's what she means. Sanders often boasted about the importance of the issues rather than individuals, of not playing dirty politics or running nasty ads in his campaign. And it's certainly true that he didn't slime Hillary by bringing Bill's sexual accusers forward, which is kind of, let's, I mean, the whole Juanita Broderick thing is a little bit problematic. Let's mm-hmm. be real. Like, well, that's for another episode. But <laughs> something feminists really failed to do was, like, even pretend to care about that story. Yeah. But within months, taking advantage of justified frustration with politics as usual, Parentheses, a frustration more appropriately aimed at GOP stonewalling of Democratic, legis- Democratic legislation, and parentheses, Sanders was taking Hillary down in a different way, as an establishment tool and creature of Wall Street. And then she quotes uh, Sanders saying, I think, frankly, it's hard to be a real progressive and to take on the establishment in a way that I think it has to be taken on when you come as dependent as she has through her super PAC and in other ways on Wall Street and drug co- company money. But that's true. Yeah. Right? Like, so, I mean, those criticisms of Bernie is just so ridiculous because it, 
if it weren't true, then sure. But it right. is true. So the pro- is the problem her? that someone said it? Yeah. Or is the problem that that's true of Hillary Clinton? Hillary Clinton is the problem. It's not the of fact course. that someone exposed her. You shouldn't blame the person. Right, right. That's like blaming the media for, for ex- exposing crap. Like, it's right. ridiculous. I mean, and I think we can do, again, like, with the media, there is sexist, there's sexist coverage of Hillary, no doubt. There's also coverage that was very, very pro-Hillary and very anti-Sanders, right? Yeah. But again, and, you and go Bernie back to not the get actual. As much TV time. Oh, my God. They the cut away from him to cut to Donald Trump's empty podium while he was speaking yeah. to Bernie Sanders. So she's saying that Bernie took advantage of people's frustration and that said frustration was perceived to be the result of politics as usual, but they're actually wrong, these people who are frustrated, because what they really were frustrated with was Republican obstructionism. That's what she's saying, right? She says, okay, so, like, they don't get it, but you do, Susan. Susan Susan gets it. You've always been good at getting it. You get the basis for other people's perception, right? The students, the voters. The idea that, like, literally that it is taking advantage of people's... This was a change election. People did not want the status quo. Don't mm-hmm. pretend the status quo is a Republican attack on Democrats. What are you talking about? People feel... And don't pretend that Democrats are not exactly. neoliberals. That, like, exactly. Democrats have gone to the right, yeah, and they're part that's of this... what people are pissed off right. about. She's, she's casting it as a very... Obviously, I prefer Democrats in lots of ways to Republicans, but the difference is smaller and smaller. Like, we are forced to admit how small it is, but, like, mm-hmm. don't pretend that people were partisan in their rejection of of politics as usual. They don't yeah. care about stonewalling Demo- Like, they follow this policy stuff. No, they get the sense they're being screwed, because they mm-hmm. are. So, yeah. So, basically, her her story is that, like, uh, Sanders was exploiting dupes into misdirecting their frustration and supporting him, while, you know, like, pragmatic progressives like Hillary and her supporters, like you, Susan, were just try- are trying to get things done. Okay, this is, like, my favorite part. By the time Sanders argued that Clinton was not a true progressive. The word was not very useful descriptively. One can be progressive in some ways and not so progressive in others, and no politician that I know of has ever struck every progressive chord. Context matters, too. As Jonathan Cohn wrote in May, quote, if Sanders is the standard by which you're going to decide whether a politician is a progressive, then almost nobody from the Democratic Party would qualify. Take Sanders out of the equation, and suddenly Clinton looks an awful lot like a mainstream progressive, end quote. Yeah, duh, that's the whole fucking point. <laughs> yeah. He's exceptional. Like, if you're saying that Sanders is that's exceptional, you're right. And that is what you're saying. Even though yeah. I get the feeling, like, neither you, Cohen, or Susan gets that. Like, Sanders. That's a great criticism of the Democratic Party, yeah, not exactly. like. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's a perfect explanation of why he was an outlier. He stood out. That is why he was uniquely popular. Not because he had a penis and not because he said that Hillary Clinton wasn't as progressive. Like, you literally are endorsing him. Like, you just blessed his next presidential run. I don't think he's going to do it. But although, as Freddie DeBoer points out, he's only six months older than Harrison Ford. Just something Bernie Sanders. Keep in mind. Um, So, yeah. So, Sanders is uniquely principled and uniquely progressive, which is something you guys just said. And that's what people like about him. That's not supposed to be your lane, though. That's our lane. Like, that's our, <laughs> our work to do. And, of course, we think about him, and you think that about your candidate, uh, which is why the subheading of your piece, Susan, was about the most qualified candidate ever. Um, yeah, so I'll finish this later. Well, there, there's so much more to unpack here, but I will, I will just say, when Sanders denied that badge of honor, progressive, when Sanders denied that progressive badge of honor to Clinton, he wasn't distinguishing his agenda from hers. Their positions on most issues were, in reality, pretty similar. Again, you just said above that he was uniquely progressive. So you can't then say that they're identical. That's just absurd. And this is, I like this, the way she ends it. The news media even let Sanders get away with describing Planned Parenthood and NARAL as, quote-unquote, establishment when he didn't get their endorsement. 
They made little of it when he described abortion as a social issue, as though loss of control over one's reproductive life has no impact on one's economic survival. Okay, first of all, the media absolutely made a big deal out of his calling Planned Parenthood and NARAL and human rights campaign. They, Of course they made a big deal out of establishment, and we know that because WikiLeaks shows us that Podesta emailed out journalists to tell them to talk about this talking point, and there was a hashtag, um, so estab- hashtag so establishment, or I'm so establishment. Mm-hmm. It was a... It was a clumsy way thing for Sanders to say it was, and it fell into their to their game really all too well. But let, let's just be honest: like Planned Parenthood is not the Sylvia Rivera law yeah. project. It's not um, JFRED, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Like these are national organizations who do great things, make major differences in people's lives. I'm not at all pretending that they don't. But they're also they're like unions. You know, they're very mm-hmm. they're very tied to the Democratic Party, and they mm-hmm. don't they don't actually they should be they should be using their political weight to actually like get concessions out of people. Sanders is is the only difference between Sanders and Clinton is that he's more unapologetically pro-choice than Clinton is. Yeah. I mean, and of course, like all these organizations, they have to uh, feed into the establishment because they're assuming Hillary Clinton's going to win and not Bernie Sanders. And then where are they going to get their government funding from? Right. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But it's so funny that she said the news media even let them get away with that. There's literally a campaign and that was a talking point. So you're like using a talking point to argue against... um, and then, oh, this is the best. Ready? Oh my god! They accepted the media. They accepted without question his description of descriptions of himself as an activist for feminist causes when all he had done was vote the right way in the Senate. Uh, okay. They posted pictures of him being arrested at a protest against the University of Chicago's real estate investments while making no mention of the work Hillary had done while she was the same age investigating racist housing practices with Marin Ray Edelman. Clinton's email and her trust problems were the only stories about her they were ever, they were interested in reporting. Okay, I just want to give you a a quick, a hot pro tip, Susan. You probably don't want to end your piece with Marion Ray Edelman, who literally said that the Clintons were were old friends but not political friends because Mm -hmm. she, she disagreed with them so much on welfare reform. So it's really funny that you put that out there. Second of all, I'm sorry, you're mad at the media for posting pictures of him being arrested at a protest. Do you know how, why that happened? That was because John Lewis said he didn't remember seeing Bernie Sanders at the mm-hmm. civil rights movement. As I always say this, like as if there was an attendance sheet yeah. and there was one meeting once. Yeah. The man was really reluctant to talk about that. They had to be, someone found those photos. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even Bernie Sanders. It was someone working on a documentary about University of Chicago. We had him on the show. So, basically, Susan, you're mad that the media didn't do... The media blackout on Bernie wasn't complete enough for you. Mm-hmm. Like, that's your problem with the media, is that they dare to publish very relevant photos of Bernie Sanders getting arrested. And good for Hillary for working with Marion Wright Edelman. She did a lot of great work. But, like, sorry, also send, show us some, like, dramatic photos, and then they would have published them. But you're kidding me. Like, literally, the DNC establishment and the media that... that that reported on the story literally portrayed Sanders as absent during the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Susan, those are just ridiculous. Yeah. So these two millennial feminists who do not dismiss feminism and don't dismiss the stuff that Hillary Clinton has done. She has done stuff. She and her generation, you guys have done stuff. My mom is a big feminist. My mom's seven years old. Guess who she supported in the primary? And she also thinks that Hillary got a raw deal, but you know who she supports? Bernie Sanders. She wrote her PhD in Virginia Woolf. She's named after Nora from a doll's house, the Ibsen play. <laughs> Come on. 
So, Susan, come on the show. We'll debate it with you. And that's been your worst take of the week. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Aaron, uh, it was really nice meeting you. Nice and meeting I'm looking forward to coming to a DSA meeting sometime in the near future. I'm, I'm going to join the DSA. You're going to see me join the DSA. If you go to <laughs> socialists.nyc, you can look at the DSA calendar and find out what's going on in the other uh, other upcoming events yes. at socialistsplural.nyc. Okay, well, thank you guys so much. Make sure that you join thank our you. Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. We give you such great bonus material. And please uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and rate us on iTunes and rate us and review us. But thank you so much, Aaron Neff, for joining us. Thanks, guys, for for listening to Katie Halper show. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Yeah. See you guys next week. Bye. Bye.